It's a delight for me today to introduce our speaker. Speaker Will Davis comes to us from Muncie, Indiana. I can assure you that he came much more slowly today to Indiana Wesleyan than I uh, going to Muncie about a month ago. In fact, I have a ticket that uh, would indicate that I was going in excess of the speed limit. Will comes to us from Ontario Corp in Muncie, a company that he founded and is president, co-founded and pre- as president. Uh, they specialize in computer software. Uh, they're the largest software manufacturer in Indiana in the area of receivable management software. And it is a real pleasure to welcome Will. He's one of the few businessmen that I call on that has Jesus Christ in his mission statement at that corporation. And that's a corporation of about 350 employees. So will you join me in welcoming Will Davis? Thank you. Good morning, Indiana Wesleyan. Thank you. I've always wanted to talk to a whole group of world changers at one time, and now I've got my chance. And we're excited about being here. Uh, I thought it was interesting that yesterday was the Super Bowl. It was a year ago at the Super Bowl that Monster.com, you all know what Monster.com does? Ad, ad posting for jobs, right? They, they've started running a series of commercials, and I love this series of commercials. The, uh, the commercials, a uh, little boy comes out and he says, when I grow up, I want to have a job where I'm underappreciated and underpaid, right? And the little girl comes out and says, I want to do the same job as somebody else and get paid a lot less for doing it, right? And I thought, wow, you know, that they're really hitting at the core of what frustrates people about working today. And last night at the Super Bowl, the Monster.com's ad for the second year came on, and it was a really good ad, and it said, uh, at the end of it, the tagline was, good job, good life. And I thought... Yeah, you know, that's probably true. We spend a lot of our waking hours at work. And if we don't have a good job, we know for sure we don't have a good life. But it got me thinking about what constitutes a good job. I grew up in a preacher's family. My dad happens to be a pastor. He was a full-time pastor for 43 years. And, you know, I grew up with the idea that if if you're really doing what you're supposed to be doing, you have a sense of calling about it. You have a sense of purpose about what you're doing. Now, every day that my dad went to work was not an easy day. He had really tough days. He had really hard days. But if you ask him at the end of the day, were you doing what you were supposed to be doing? He'd say, yeah. How do you know? What does good job, good life mean, and how would you quantify a good job? When I graduated from college, and I'm maybe a little bit like some of you, it took me three majors to get out of college. And then I didn't ever use the major I graduated with. Uh, So it took me three majors to get out of college. I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I wanted to do whatever it was I was supposed to do. And I didn't know what that was. I went to work in a bank. Bank's a nice place to work. They have air conditioning. It's a nice, clean atmosphere. Don't get your hands very dirty. I like working in a bank. A friend called me three years later and said, would you like to work in the computer industry? In fact, we're automating General Motors production facilities and I need some help. And I know you like computers. I said, wow, that sounds like fun. I went to work at General Motors. I learned a lot of things working at General Motors. And General Motors is a great corporation. They give some of the best training in the world, has some fantastic benefits. But I also learned something else that's really important. And I'd like to share that with you this morning. I learned where the most dangerous place on the face of the earth is. Would you like to know? You know, when I talk about that, 
people know that it was a heavy manufacturing environment and they think about having these molten vats of metal so hot that it would just bubble. And I'd say, you know, we had those and they were very dangerous. And occasionally somebody got hurt working around those and that was a sad thing. But that wasn't the most dangerous place. Some people know that we were the largest plastics plater in the world at the time. We had huge vats of acid. And the acid baths, people had to work above them sometimes and every now and then somebody would fall and they'd get hurt, burn badly. And that was a very dangerous place. But it wasn't the most dangerous place. In fact, the most dangerous place when I worked there was about three feet outside the exit doors at four o'clock. What happened at four o'clock? Shift change, right. And if you'd have been standing three feet outside of those doors, there was nothing that could have saved your life because you'd have been stampeded by the people who were living to get out of work, but they were obviously dead at work. What is good job, good life? And the problem wasn't with General Motors. The problem was primarily with me. I didn't understand that at the time because I began to feel a little bit like that. You know, I've, I found it a little bit easy to sleep in in the morning and, and I really wanted to get home about four o'clock. I was, I was in line, I, I gotta admit. I thought to myself, this isn't the model I grew up with. I didn't have a sense of calling about that. And I began to wonder, is there a way to incorporate a sense of calling into a job that is not full-time pastoral ministry? I would guess that many of you who go to a, a Christian college like Indiana Wesleyan kind of wonder that same thing from time to time. You have a full commitment to Christ, but you don't necessarily feel called into full-time pastoral ministry. My dad tells the story of uh, the farm kid who, who was really struggling with this question in his life. And he, he said, God, please give me a sign. And he went outside and he looked up in the clouds and there in the clouds miraculously appeared the letters GPC. He said, that's it. That's my sign. Go preach Christ. He went into the seminary, went into full-time pastoral ministry. And frankly, he struggled. It was really tough. It just never had a real satisfying experience. And when he finally died, he got to the pearly gates and he said to St. Peter, St. Peter, before you let me in, he says, I got one question. You know, I gave my life to the Lord. I did what you told me to do. I asked for a sign. You gave me the sign. I did it. Why, why was it so bad? And he said, well, you asked for a sign and we gave you a sign, but we knew you were a farmer and we did never dreamed you'd think it meant go preach Christ. It meant go plant corn. How many times have we missed the signal that God has given to us by our own unique talents, gifts, and abilities? What did it mean? So after I'd worked at General Motors for about three years, I had the opportunity to start a company of my own starting in the, in the microcomputer software industry. And as my partner and I began to think about that, we began to think about why are we doing this? We have good paying jobs. We have jobs that have some social status. You could tell your friends that you went to college with, I'm working at General Motors, and they go, ooh, cool. You know, and that's part of what you want, right? You want to be affirmed by the work that you're doing. We had good benefits. My son should have cost me at least $45,000. He was very, very sick when he was little, and he was in the hospital for a long time. It cost me a dollar and a half. Had great benefits. Why were we starting this company? And we became convinced that it was more about what, the way we do what we do than it is about what we do. So I'm going to talk to you this morning about the word vocation. The word literally comes from the same root word as the word vocal, vocare. It literally means to call. And your vocation 
should have a sense of calling about it that lends dignity and purpose to whatever it is that you're doing at that particular moment in time. Vocation. Ron and I wrote down a statement of corporate philosophy. Terry alluded to it this morning. There are five paragraphs. There's so many words, even I can't remember them, so I brought a copy, so I'll be sure and get them right. But I'm going to leave you with five words. If you can remember five words, there'll be some takeaway value that I'm going to give you. I know you're all smart college students, so five words is not a big challenge, right? Here we go. The first paragraph says, we believe that all of life is a gift from God. Our work is part of that gift. From time to time, people would come up to Ron and I and they would say, boy, you guys must be really smart. You started a business. It looks like it's going to be successful. This was way before we knew whether or not it would be. And I'd look at Ron and I'd say, is that what made us successful? How smart we are? I'd say, you know, I know him really well. He's not that smart. He'd look at me and he'd say, I know him really well. He's dumb. There's no way. That's why we were going to be successful. What caused it? We believe that it was a gift, an opportunity given to us. There are a lot of things in life that come to us like that. You can't control the color of your eyes. You can't control your own intelligence quotient. Your IQ is kind of set. But the things that are given to us, we have the opportunity to be, here's the first key word, good stewards of. We believe it's a fundamental responsibility to be good stewards of the opportunities that are given to us in life. And all of life is a gift, including customers, fellow employees, vendors, and the communities in which we serve. The second paragraph actually builds on that a little bit. And it uses the word, it says, we believe the good stewardship of the gift is expected of each one of us. And our work reflects our stewardship of this particular gift. The quality of what we do says what we've done with the stewardship of the gift of work that's been given to us. Uh, my key word for this paragraph is a really simple word, but it's a word I love. The word integrity. Integrity comes from an old English weaving word. Literally means to be woven together out of the same cloth. And what we tell people the first day they come to work for us is, we never expect you to compromise your personal integrity for a corporate benefit. Kind of go back to a story from General Motors days, but I was walking down the hall with my supervisor one day to go to the general manager's office to justify a project that I was going to be asked to program. I was going to paint with robots at the time. And uh, I was supposed to do the software controls for that project. And he was grabbing me to help build the case to do this technical project. And he hadn't really warned me about this. And I'm walking down the hall with him saying, you know, I'm not sure this is cost justifiable. I think if we get in there and manage our people a little better, we can probably do it for less than the amount of money we're going to spend on this project. I'll never forget what he said to me. He slapped me on the back as he walked down the hallway, never broke stride. And he said, just tell yourself a lie long enough and pretty soon you'll start to believe it. And you know, that's true. But I felt really, really awkward. I didn't know what I was going to say. Now, fortunately, the person we were going to see was not in their office. So I never had to justify that project. But your personal integrity is so, so very important. How important is it? Let me digress for just a moment and say, I believe integrity is the basis for relationships. Since people live forever, most people who studied people come to that conclusion. They live forever. If integrity is what allows you to be in relationship with somebody, it may be a sacred value. A sacred, I'm going to come back to this issue because being absolutely honest all the time can create some problems. I want to talk about that in a second. How would you live a life of good stewardship with integrity at work? What in the world does that mean? And I would say to you, you know, I'm not sure. I think it probably is different for every single person. So let's you and I pick a model that we can emulate 
and figure out if we can what he did. See if we can make that our model for what it means to be a good steward of integrity. So the third paragraph says simply, we believe that the best example of a life of good stewardship is the life of Jesus Christ. It's his example we'd follow in making daily decisions. Now we're a secular business. I always tell people at this point, whatever decision you've made about Jesus Christ, that's a personal decision. But let me argue for just a moment. The organizationally, he's the consummate organization guy. Think about this. He only was in executive management for three years. He hired 12 senior vice presidents. One of them didn't work out so well, but, but I don't, don't think that was a bad choice on his part. And yet he built an organization in three years that is 2,000 years old. Not very many things are 2,000 years old, and a lot of countries aren't. Most companies are not for sure. How did he do that? A couple of his senior vice presidents came to him and said, look, boss, we really want to be the number one and number two vice presidents in the new organization. We can see what you're putting together here. This is exciting. How do we do this? And he looked at him. I think he had a twinkle in his eye because I think he was kind of chuckling on the inside. And he said, you want to be the best, huh? Well, here, tell you what. Figure out how to be a servant to everybody else you come in contact with and you will be the best that you can be. You'll be number one and number two in my new order. It's one thing to apply that to other people. What did he do to himself? You know, he applied the same standard. He said, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve. I think he's telling us this really key thing about what satisfies us in life. Do you have days when you get up and you think, I'm bored, I got nothing to do. I, I don't, I don't want to go to class today. This is really a bummer. I, I remember when I was a little kid, I had an eight-year-old a brother who was eight years older than me. You can kind of imagine what an awkward gap that is. About the time he's 16, starting to drive, doing car dates. He has a little brother who's eight years younger than him who wants to see every single thing he's doing. It was worse than that. I have a twin brother. He had two brothers eight years younger than him who were always hanging around, wanting to play basketball with him and his friends, wanting to meet all of his dates. And I came into the house one summer in between, uh, well, we were summer vacation. And uh, I remember I used to get the whines in the summertime. I know this never affected any of you, but, but it actually affected me. And I came in, I kind of flopped down in the, in the living room and I said, I'm bored. I got nothing to do. And, you know, he'd had it about up to here with me at that point. And he said, you know what your problem is? And I said, no, what? I wanted to say wise guy, but he was a lot bigger than me. So I was smart enough not to do that. He said, your problem is you're only thinking about you. If you'll get busy and do something for somebody else, you won't have nothing to do. You won't be bored. It's kind of a golden rule of life. What satisfies us is when we understand what we've done to be of service, of importance, of value to somebody else. And wherever we are, we can live out a servant ethic. Wherever you live out a servant ethic, I believe you'll find satisfaction in what you're doing. A golden key. How do you live out a life of good stewardship with integrity? By being of service. And what's the problem with that? I mentioned this issue of integrity just a moment ago. When I was working with one of my friends at a trade show one time, we, we like to kind of wax philosophic about life and things. And he, I remember him looking up at me and saying, you know what, Will? I said, what, Joe? Honest people disagree. Then he went back to work. And I thought about that for a minute. I said, yeah, that's absolutely true. In fact, in my own life, I have a great example of that. I know of no person who's more honest than my wife. We've been married for 27 and a half years now. 27 and a half years later, believe it or not, she still thinks occasionally I'm wrong. 
Honest people disagree. What do you do with disagreements? How do you make a constructive tension? It's probably not helpful to assert that your way is always right. And I have a little poem that I use to explain this to my staff, and it says it better than I can. So just let me tell you this poem, which many of you probably know. If you do, let me repeat it anyway, because I like it so well myself. Uh, about the six blind men who go to see an elephant. Y'all know this story? It was six men of Indostan to learning much inclined who went to see an elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant and happening to fall against his broad and sturdy side at once began to bawl. God bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall. You can kind of play this game. The second feeling of the tusk cried, Oh, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp to me, tis mighty clear. This wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the elephant and happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands, thus boldly up and spake, I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. Good. The fourth reached out his eager hand and felt about the knee. Hmm, what most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quoth he. Tis clear enough the elephant is very like a tree. Great. This is the hard one. The fifth no sooner reached out his hand. Now, let's see, how does it go? The fifth who chanced to touch the ear. That's what it is. The fifth who chanced to touch the ear said, Why, ain't the blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny the fact who can. This marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. Good. The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a... And so these men of Indostan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right. All were in the wrong. Isn't that the parable of us? Haven't we all touched different parts of this elephantine reality of life? We've none of us come the same journey. We don't see things the same way. I have a twin brother who is very, very different than me. We don't agree. My wife, I've lived for 27 years. We don't agree. It's not helpful in those moments to, to when you disagree to say, can't you see it my way? Look, let me explain to you all the reasons I'm right. What's helpful is to say, wow, wonder what part of the elephant you're touching. It's not even a goal to convince everybody that my view is correct. It's my goal and my work is that at the end of my day, I look back and you say, you know what? Thank God, because of you, I see more of the elephant of life. I understand more than I did before. That's a special gift we give to each other. It helps us celebrate the spectacular diversity that God created. And I just encourage you with yourself and use it, use it with others. What part of the elephant are you touching? How can that help? If you were good and you lived up to being a good steward with integrity by being of service and by having respect, the, the fourth key word is tolerance. Sometimes it's called respect for the individual. If you could do those four things, then we kind of believe that in your work life, you're going to be known as a professional. The word professional literally means to profess, is to speak before. I've been before you speaking. I've been kind of professorial this morning, speaking before you. What we tell people is, you know, it doesn't do any good for us to take this piece of paper with all those wonderful values and words written down them, wrap them around our sleeves and go out and talk to customers. Wouldn't you like to do business with a company that lives by these? That doesn't do any good. It only makes a difference if they see it in our lives. It only makes a difference if we're able to live it out.
I'd rather see a sermon than to hear one any day. I'd rather one would walk with me than merely tell the way. For the eye is a better pupil, more willing than the ear. Fine counsel is confusing, but example, always clear. The best of all the preachers are the ones who live their creeds. For to see good put in action, that's what everybody needs. Folks, that's what our world needs. If we're going to be world changers, they need to see that there's a difference in us. We need to be called above and beyond our own normal way of thinking about it and the way the world wants us to think about it and realize that God has called us to be good stewards, have perfect integrity before him and with our fellow man, to find ways of serving wherever he places you, to respect life infinitely and to let our work speak before us. I grew up in a preacher's family. Preachers get ordained. I'm going to take a little bit of a risk with you this morning. Ordination is not typically done outside of the pastoral ministry. But what I'd like to do this morning is have you turn to the people that are right with you. And I'd like to pray with you. The word ordination literally means to be aligned. To be aligned. Our work aligns us with what we are called to be. And what I want you to do is to ordain each other this morning and this week and in every possible way affirm the unique calling that God has given to you as his person. Oh, you know, I don't know what that means. It doesn't, it may not mean that you'll be doing the same thing 10 years from now you're doing now. It didn't in my case. It may or may not in your case. That's okay. We're called to be his people. There's two scriptures that we're called to fulfill, I think, in everything we do. The Great Commission. And to do everything as unto the Lord. I'm going to ask Jennifer to come back and sing a song. As she gets ready to do that, let me share a prayer with you. Just reach out your hands to the people beside you. Give them the affirmation of your heart. Be a channel of what God is saying to them. In this moment, will you pray with me? Eternal God, in the name of Jesus, we thank you that you've called us to the incredible privilege of carrying your word as a light into the world of darkness. Help us to know within ourselves that you are with us. Help us not to covet a gift of another for a particular type of service but to use the gifts you've given us for the service that you've called us uniquely to in every day, in every moment, in every way. Holy Father, we don't deserve your trust of this gift, but we pray that you'd help us as we seek to be good stewards with integrity, by being of service to those you put into our path every day as we respect the life that you created. We thank you for all you do, and we continue our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.